Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sedudicato, sharing stories, experiences, and reflections to nourish the feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance between the archetypal feminine and masculine. On this episode, I'm discussing Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and its themes of feminine and masculine, light and shadow, the hero's journey, politics, and what haunts us from within. And this time, I have a guest. I'm excited to be opening up these episodes to facilitate conversations and not just my own thoughts. And so my first guest today is a filmmaker named Bobby Bruton. Bobby is also a stage director, philosopher, writer, and he also happens to be both my boyfriend and a big fan of The Shining. The last few years, we've been having several deep conversations about the film. And one day I said to him, you know what? We should be recording a podcast episode about this. It fits perfectly. So here we are. And we're thinking about doing a few more film reflections like this, calling this segment of the podcast Imago in Motion. So follow along if you think you'd like to hear more episodes like this. So it's useful if you've seen the movie or know it well, because we do jump around describing scenes as they relate by theme. And just a quick note about audio, because this is my first time having a guest on the podcast. We didn't have the most ideal setup, so the audio could be better. Uh, But you can look forward to future episodes when I suspect the audio will actually be better. Until then, here's Bobby and me digging into the rich and haunting themes of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Thank you for sitting down and talking in front of microphones. Thank you, Vanessa, for having me. Thank you, Bobby. Okay, listen. The Shining. It's a movie that you once said was maybe the best horror movie. I'd say it's certainly my favorite horror movie. You also said it might be the best movie. Yeah, it might be. So this is a movie that, until I started watching it with you, I didn't realize so many levels of the depths of this film, which is that there's gender and racial dynamics, capitalism, fascism, the play between the conscious and the unconscious, the hero's journey. Yeah. There's a lot of elements in this. Potentially. A lot of masculine Well, sure. <laughs> that reminds me of something that I was curious about getting into, possibly, yeah. which is, when did you first see this movie? Oh, I was young. I, I mean, I wasn't, it's hard to say I wasn't inappropriately young, but it was just a horror movie. And it was something that I knew to be afraid of, maybe because of how other people, adults, were reacting to it. And that there are obviously some scenes that get a little horror-ish. Mm-hmm. Even though, generally speaking, it kind of isn't. Do you remember the circumstances? No. I was trying to situate myself. I don't remember much specific about it, mm-hmm. but I know that it was when it first came out on DVD, which was, I think, 1999. Okay. So, I was 12. Even if it came out in 2000, I would still be 12 because I turn ages and turn near the end of the year. <laughs> and I remember the audio being particularly bad because they hadn't restored the audio portion of it. And so it still was the original mono mix. And on our old TV, that just came through as 
most of the dialogue was indiscernible. The music was too loud. And it made the movie, it would have been incomprehensible to me anyway, much of it. But I, it certainly was more incomprehensible to me as a 12-year-old, not even being able to understand most of the, the literal dialogue. Right. But the scene in the bathroom where the woman comes out of the tub, mm -hmm. perhaps because it was sexual, was the most frightening thing mm. I had ever seen. Yeah. Still remains one of the most frightening things I've ever seen in a movie. At that age, it was the most frightening thing I was conscious of. Do I, you remember what part of it was the most scary? The entire thing. Yeah. Uh, but once, once you know that there's a woman in the tub, I was afraid of being in or around a shower tub that had those sorts of curtains after that wow i thought for sure there was something behind every one of those Ooh, well i certainly carried that fear i don't know i mean it could have been unconsciously that i picked it up from this yeah i remember being put off deeply by the reveal in the mirror and i thought like you know i didn't have the language for a sort of shapeshifter or you know something that could disguise itself that way but that element was disturbing to me that like I couldn't trust what I was seeing, and maybe even then what I was touching. Yes, right. That it it, it could be. Something I think that else. was more to it than even the rotting flesh. To me, was mm -hmm. the sense that he could be seeing and touching something that to him was this still this relatively attractive woman, and that he wouldn't be able to tell. Right, there was something secret. Yeah, I agree that that's. Uh, I agree. <laughs> that's something that's very scary about that scene. I also think, though, that what was interesting to me about it was that before anything overtly scary happens, and it, I was just so in tune with the soundtrack mm -hmm. and the, what it was telling me and the way and how slow mm. everything became. Mm. I wonder how, given the way you described the sound when you first watched it, what I brought up today when we just watched it about Danny riding his little tricycle through the yeah. hotel and how there's these moments where he's on the hardwood and then he's on the carpet, hardwood carpet. And I thought, oh, there's something so profound about the, the noises, the shifts, the contrast, the silence that appears in the middle of nowhere. And it's just visceral. And actually, yeah, it's hard to intellectualize why that would even be important. Mm. Uh, I, I do think that's one of those visceral elements in the movie that open you up. Yeah, because you're following him already. So there's something visceral about just being behind him and we're moving with him. But then we're also hearing, we're having a similar sensory experience that he's having, which when we realize all of the different experiences that he has while he's on these little solo adventures through the through the hallways, we're going along with him. Yes. And they're, they're, they get very disturbing. Yes. yes. But there's, a, there's also this contrast that's experienced in the, the sound and the silence and the sound and the silence. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of repeating itself. Yeah. Which is really inviting. And it was something that Stanley Kubrick himself was sort of defended against when he initially heard it. Mm. He thought it might be too much for the audience. Interesting. Too it much. It might disorient them. But the anecdote there is that coincidentally, yeah. someone was visiting the set at that time who put on the headphones and listened to what Stanley Kubrick had just been listening to and feeling kind of nervous about, oh, maybe we could muffle the hardwood mm -hmm. or make the carpet sound more like the hardwood. Or, But this man listened to it and said, no, I think you want to keep that. And that 
guy was Werner Herzog, That's... who just happened to be there. <laughs> so wild. So and and at that moment, then Stanley Kubrick did accept. He said, "I think you're right." Mm-hmm. He could hear it differently. Yeah. yeah. He was invited into understanding the meaning. Whereas just the technician saying you might want right. to avoid this. Was right. This isn't an accident. Yeah. Right. So I wonder how it sounded. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but I wonder how things like that. Well, There's also a lot with the wind and the snow. Those things were more present than the dialogue. Interesting. Yeah, the dialogue was almost like incidental. And then all these things that are normally incidental, you could hear very clearly. How that could be distracting. For a normal audience. But it also <laughs> did make it more of a visceral experience for me. Yeah. It's more about that than what was literally coming out of these characters mouths which it turns out almost everything they say is ironic mm. or detached and i wouldn't have caught that i think at that age but um yeah that but wasn't the element that i was privy to right at 12 sure either way was that when it became one of your favorite movies or when did that happen i was kind of in between i think where it could do maximum uh, damage or or make me love it immediately. Mm. I think that if I had been closer to Danny's age, I would have more loved it immediately, even in the in the ways that it frightened me deeply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I would have been more frightened by other scenes. You know, just there'd be more opportunities to be absolutely frightened, and also too too young to understand the what it's like to be an adult watching that movie mm. and to identify at all with Jack. Right. So I basically had no ad- identification figures. I was frustrated from identifying with any of the potential identification figures in the movie, especially Danny, because I could see him clearly, but I felt like he was being too childish at that age. Like the way that he clammed up, I'm just like, why don't you just mm. say what's wrong? Why don't you just, mm. you know? Which is, is interesting. he's going through such an internal experience. Mm-hmm. It's so, I, I, I said before that there's, there's a hero's journey element to this, where I see Jack and Danny both going on their own hero's journey. And Jack is so externalized about it. Danny is so internalized about it. It's yes. his inner world that's really being shaken up. But he's allowing it. He's allowing himself to remain curious and open to finding things out, even when they scare him. Well, he's open to it because he has this figure, Tony, that right. in some sense he knows can guide him, even when it gets too scary for Danny. I, I was noting what the difference is between them, because mm-hmm. they're obviously, you know, obvious to his mother. They're Tony the same and Danny. kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, she keeps trying to get Danny to come out when Tony takes over completely. Right. And I was thinking, well, Tony, first of all, what's obvious is he... He addresses her in those scenes as Mrs. Torrance. So I was thinking about it. It is this mm. voice that is able to tell us things that are perhaps more objective or detached from the the relations we have that mm. are very the, even the deepest one. The because familiar, he's yeah. not her son anymore. Right. So in some sense, this is a voice that is deeper than his connection to his mother. Right. Or more objective or something. There's just something that allows him to see things that he's blind to through being identified as the son or, or having an identity that is Danny. Right. Which is, of course, in a sense, because he's either infantilized or sort of ignored entirely. Yeah. So it makes sense that he'd have to kind of outsource 
a little bit of whatever this ability is that he has to mm-hmm. kind of know things mm-hmm. that it doesn't quite fit into the body and the experience of a child. So something else has to kind of come and support him and act as a protector just by nature of its existence, but how actually whole that allows him to be and how much that allows him to take chances and answer the call to adventure. And again, remain curious. Like he's attracted to understanding things, even when he knows that either he should find them scary or adults found them scary we were talking about halloran and how he's kind of like saying don't go into room 237 i'm not scared of it but don't go there before that he's almost giving an instruction manual on how to trust this thing this power that he has right he's talking to him very calmly and clearly so that a child but not condescending right he's not talking down just talking in a way that someone who doesn't quite know what they have could handle and he's being very clear and as truthful as he can be Mm-hmm. And the moment that's crucial, though, is when he catches him in a, a kind of lie or a contradiction. Danny has a series of questions when he gets to room 237. Mm-hmm. Halloran says, there ain't nothing scary about 237. There's nothing in 237 for you, so just stay out. And yeah, we, I... Kids can see through that. Right. They know. It's so interesting how often his power is activated just by the simple act of adults clearly lying. Yes. Or contradicting themselves. Yes. Yes. And the ways that adults think that they're getting that, like, over kids' heads. Yes. When especially that contrast between Halloran being so transparent, maybe the most transparent adult Mm -hmm. that he has in his life, to suddenly shutting that down and protecting something. Of course, this kid, most kids would, this kid would detect that yes and then one well, yeah, lean into and, and it Alan has to know that totally he i think that is why he's being so truthful with him because he knows anything else won't work which speaks to the power of the fear that he actually does have about that room that mm-hmm. he even loses touch with that when he's talking to him yeah his defenses come up i think that scene because it is directed at the consciousness of a boy like danny mm-hmm. i always kind of laughed nervously at it or was frustrated by the pace of it mm. because he's enunciating everything <laughs> he says examples like burnt toast and that's kind of funny uh, but it, it almost like a non sequitur and so it's full of these elements that were frustrating for me as a younger person yeah. <laughs> watching this movie right or or I went through a phase where it was just something to make fun of because mm. what is this scene? I didn't even understand it. Mm. I think it's because I wasn't open to the sense in which it is telling you to listen to instincts that you have. Yeah. Learn to trust them. Yeah. And don't Learn try to, to ask out... the right, right questions. Yes, yes, yes. Don't try to outrun it because mm-hmm. uh, it gets you. <laughs> right. And And don't, you know, that idea of the hero's journey, the reason that hero archetype is the important one to follow is because if you get called out to an adventure and you're not stepping into the hero you're stepping into the victim likely which is what jack ends up going through and that leads him into a spiral of darkness that he can't get out of yes he he it's through his servility that he becomes that yeah because every man who speaks well enough to him in this movie mm-hmm. is an authority figure mm-hmm. to him and he's simultaneously as you pointed out earlier mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. off mic uh <laughs> empowered and frustrated by that he 
Yeah. He knows that he's giving, he's accepting the authority of someone else, but also feels that he has an authority in some sense through doing what this other person is telling him to do now. Yeah. Never what he's actually choosing. Yes. Which I don't even know if he would know what to choose because he's, he's so outsourced empty. it. He's yeah. very, at this point. Uh, oh, at this point, he's a shell of which, a person. Which is indicated in his inability to write. Yeah. He doesn't have an acceptable inner life. Mm. He has an inner life that seems like it must be the fantasies of other people because it's so dark and unacceptable. That's uh, such a good point. We haven't even really talked about him as a writer and how empty he is in that way. And if he's externalizing all of this, including his power, that he, what would he even have to pull from in order to write? Well, if he's not accepting his fantasies as his own, nothing. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. Which is what we inevitably see. So what did you what did you have to see? Because like I said, there are so many, there's gender and racial dynamics, there's capitalism, there's all of these layers of metaphor and sometimes the literal experiences of them. What did you have to kind of awaken to maybe in order for this movie to become so meaningful to you? Well, part of it was just seeing more movies, mm. especially more Stanley Kubrick movies. I mean, yeah. when I saw this movie first, it was part of a set that was to celebrate Stanley, Stanley Kubrick since, and, and it was all the films that um, Warner Brothers owned the rights to. Mm. So most of his filmography, knowing that he was dead now after Eyes Wide Shut and that this was more or less complete. And so one of the other movies I ended up watching, which way, definitely way too young at that point, was Eyes Wide Shut. Mm. And I do think that movie I overtly hated <laughs> as a 12-year-old trying to grapple with it. But I do think that I came to understand that movie before I understood The Shining. And that understanding that movie and the way in which it they were connected together for me through viewing them and also actually thematically connected yeah. helped me understand it. Because Eyes Wide Shut is also portraying this, this for most people, unattainable wealth. And mm. how it's all tied to these mysterious rituals and sex and death. And so through that, it being more overt in Eyes Wide Shut, I was able to see other layers in The Shining. That makes a lot of sense. You brought up wealth. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting element in this, especially when our first experience of the interior of the overlook mm -hmm. is that there's a cultural appropriation happening. There's indigenous art in the rugs, on the walls, in... Also, it's devoid of all meaning. It's purely some, like a, a sign of their dominance of yeah. this culture. It's no, It no longer is imbued with whatever meaning it had for the Navajo, as they yeah. say that that's what the designs probably were. Y yes, and it that that points also to the the luxury of the hotel right. it is about enjoying the spoils in some sense of this for most people silent war that's being waged all the time yeah and the placement of where the overlook is it's in the middle of nature that's unforgiving obviously mm -hmm. that's a lot of what we see as the movie goes on but even the intro as you're kind of driving along this road that plows through and separates mm -hmm. nature in this way that man has conquered the road enough to make that as you pointed out before but also it's so 
precarious. It's precarious, right. You can fall off. The ro- rocks can fall on it top of like you. It looks like the it's... rocks are ready to swallow you up at, at any point. There's these tunnels that look like, yeah, they could just collapse, they could obviously. You, yeah. Or you could go off into the... The, the lake or off into the chasm the clouds yeah. Yeah. where you don't even know what's underneath you anymore at that point yes. and the camera's constantly doing in that sequence yeah slowly driving Reminding itself off the you road of it's along the road for a while and then it just goes off right uh which if you're not yeah not paying attention is also something that's very easy to miss it just could be a, a title sequence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it i mean definitely there's there's importance to how consistent and eerie that imagery does feel despite it being without that music and the themes that the movie will develop it's it's banal it's just footage from a nature documentary yeah and when you pair it with then what you see this appropriated art inside of the hotel it brings me back to the first image that we see of the overlook which is that in all of this really vast overwhelming beautiful nature that is both stunning and really dangerous. There's this hotel that exists and all these cars in the parking lot and all of this evidence of man-made intrusions, so to speak, which when you pair that with the indigenous art on the walls inside of the hotel, it is akin to like going hunting and hanging the head of the deer on the wall or something. It's a symbol, yeah, for conquering forms of nature. One is actual nature the mountains and the lakes and the, and even the snow, what they attempt to do to keep it up mm, during right. the snow. And then the stand-in for nature, the human stand-in for nature right. in the movie, which, which is the the uh, Navajo people and and even their the the appropriated portrait on a calumet mm-hmm. baking powder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which and when when they're walking through the hotel with the, the manager and Wendy asks. Uh, I forget exactly what she asks, but if it's original, authentic, authentic Indian, she uses the yes. word Indian art. And he says it's yes. based on it. It's all based on original Navajo design. <laughs> right. So he sort of misses the question, but also answers it in the very white dominating way of, yeah, it's based on it. We just took it and, and recreated our own version of it or someone did. Yeah. And that leads into uh, just sequentially in the film. There are there is one portrait of a Native American on on some wall, mm-hmm. but most of the portraits are of what the uh, proprietor or manager calls all the best people, right? Which are of course presidents and royalty from European countries. That and that's a moment that Stanley Kubrick or whoever <laughs> decided to edit it that way. Um, mm-hmm make sure you hear it Mm. punctuates the scene all the best people so that is a clue as to oh this movie it's not just a horror movie it at least is about class Uh it at least is about the way that we've exploited the people who were here before us and that there's a hierarchy of them being better than the people who were here before us because they dominated them Mm -hmm. yeah So the idea of the conqueror really sort of, I think there's, you know, there's a through line throughout the movie. First of all, the room where Jack does his writing and sort of makes the rules that if he's in there, he's working and he should be left alone. And we kind of really see a lot of the bits of his transformation. That is that room we were talking about where you're 
reminded through the appropriation of Native American designs that we, as white men, conquered these people. Yes. And then we said, stay out. This is ours. If you see me in here, you can't come in here. Even if you don't see me in here, you can't come in here. No matter what I'm doing yeah. in here, just go away. This is mine now. That's it. Yeah, you're referring to the one time where he seems to spontaneously uh, um, become the rule maker. Right. Suddenly he has authority. Yeah. It's not someone yeah, but it's else. It's only over Wendy, really. Oh, it's only ever. Child. Yeah. And that's where some of the gender dynamics come in is that he'll take authority from seemingly any man, any white man who speaks a certain way. Mm-hmm. but never the woman, never his wife. His wife is the one person that he actually no does feel empowered. No matter how reasonable and caring and empathetic, all these things that right. she's combining, uh, yeah. And he, he only makes her, of course, doubt herself mm-hmm. when she's being the most perceptive. Right. It's like the, the the proprietor or manager, whatever, whatever he is, mm-hmm was doing uh, to Wendy's question about the Native American art. Dismissive. Another moment where he's dismissive of Wendy, not Jack, but the manager, is when she likens the overlook to empty of all the people who are usually there as a ghost ship. Mm -hmm. And he just has to nervously say, yes. Mm Not reflecting on anything deeper than that. Yeah. Just and, and almost with this air of like yes, but sh- the adults are talking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is also interesting because there's the split that happens when they first arrive at the hotel, where she's given the tour of the kitchen and the pantry and all of the places that she'll be responsible for serving him, and he's given the tour of. I mean, they both have jobs, right? And yes. that's fair. But the the gender stereotypes are so clearly yes. split up in that. Yeah. You know. One of the things I'm noticing, and one of the things that I think is important in this movie is you have to notice what isn't included or what is elided or what not not said. I'm trying to remember whether we actually see what they show Jack. Oh, alone. That's a good point. I think point. we just go with Wendy. At that well, point. we go with Wendy and then we go with the whole family, like yeah. when they're showing them the room. So that's their, their apartment. You know, that's one of those moments where if there is something like a pact being made that we're not aware of it's made there right that's interesting yeah where he actually gets the details of what his actual job is because as far as we can tell he he actually doesn't have any discernible responsibilities other than overseeing the whole thing he is allowed to just write all day Mm -hmm. while wendy cooks and cleans (laughs) does all the things that and, and maintains the place. She's the one checking the the boiler and all in the basement. Right. So she's doing all the things. Yeah, we don't see him doing anything. I mean, even when he can't sleep because he's got too much to do, it's not got nothing to do with that. Even though he he sort of that's that's where some of his victimhood comes from is that I'm so tied to this contract. I have man work to do in order yes. to be the man, and I don't have any freedoms. But what is he doing? But in until there's an explicit contract near the end of the movie, we have no content right. to that right? as an audience. Right. And even when we're seeing him in the office on what they're calling the interview, yeah, it's more about him receiving this warning of yes. what has happened there in the past and him guaranteeing that's not so going to be So in a sense, made. what we're saying, what I would say about that scene is that it negatively determines what content there must be in the contract. Right. Which is that the only sign we've had that there isn't a content to it 
is that they've made sure overtly that at least he's 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 not the type of guy who would do that but also covertly that whole scene feels like they're actually testing whether he is the type of guy who's capable of that totally true so we're not really seeing what then he's responsible for but the implication and what it sort of unravels is is the thing that he's responsible for and then we get that explicit contract at the end with grady when he's freeing him from the pantry is that it is to destroy them yes that they have to be what is the word that grady uses about his wife his wife had to be corrected so that really ultimately is a moral burden Mm. Mm. an ethical burden it's all a burden white man's burden yeah so okay so there's the it's it's a horror movie there are ghosts Mm -hmm. but really the ghosts are projections is it fair to say the woman is there's almost no point in the movie other than possibly to at least one that isn't explainable as these ghosts are just images in some sense that are fantasies of the of the people involved okay so let's talk about that we were i I brought this up before that the hallways in this hotel are sort of like liminal spaces where Mm -hmm. unless you cross the threshold into one of the rooms you are maybe invited you are maybe being shown something but it's not really affecting you can't reach out and grab right so even when danny's you know riding his trike through the hallways and he sees the twins and then it flashes with the, the images of them having been stabbed it's horrifying to him but he's and tony comes out and says remember it's just like images in a book it's not until he crosses the threshold into room 237 that he's he's physically affected by the ghosts that he's seeing and you brought up that that room is seemingly the one of two places in this hotel that actually represent the feminine and the feminine shadow at that part of it because the designs are a little softer there's rounder corners there's circles instead of hexagons you pointed that out first the rounded corners Just to give you credit. thank you i appreciate that i asked i think why that room that does obviously seem to have something to do with the feminine right would be the catalyst for the the, what have been just images having in some sense an an agency and and the ability to affect what we think of as the physical world and my response to that was if the masculine is where we are conscious and the feminine connects us to what is unconscious. It takes the feminine to activate something in the masculine. Otherwise, we only remain conscious of what we've already been conscious of. We don't come awake to anything new if we only stay in the masculine. It's partly why when masculine dominant spaces occur, there is a degree of dominance. There is a degree of safety that is experienced because it's like it's just we know what it is and we don't need the, to know the anything lines else. Are Right. Just like it is in the rest of the hotel. Right. Like you're pointing out it. Their lines are very Sharper straight. Sharper corners. Right. Everything is yeah. parallel. And, and suddenly you have arcs over doorways, a carpet that seems to mirror the carpet that's made out of straight lines in the rest of the hotel. Suddenly it's a version that has all these, looks more like sexual organs because mm-hmm. they're softer. Right. Rounded corners, different colors that look kind of vegetative plus purple. Which is a danger right. vegetative color. Mm. Oh, right. A lot a of warning. poisonous flowers are purple, things like that. That's interesting. Okay. Mm. So so then we enter this room and that's the first place where the images are not just images anymore. They are now 
agency. That's also mm-hmm. interesting because that's the thing that Jack really is lacking. Mm-hmm. And here are these ghosts that get it because presumably, or at least metaphorically, they're touched by the feminine. Something allows consciousness to happen there. Yeah, I think that, yeah, before the scene where Jack goes into that, we're talking simultaneously about when Danny goes into there and comes out with an injury. And by all accounts, even though Wendy blames Jack for that, it doesn't seem possible that Jack's responsible. And Wendy certainly isn't responsible because Jack was dreaming at the time Jack is not responsible. And so that's that's when Danny enters. And then when Jack enters, it does seem like the time when, before that point, he's been haunted by these things, mm. these, these fantasies, these dark fantasies that he's having. They come to him in dreams. He's played with them, maybe in his ideas about what he's going to write about. Actually, some of the deleted content and that is that he's researching all the terrible things that have happened in the hotel thinking that they will be elements in his novel oh so he's playing with those as just fantasy but after that point it is like he he has lit that into his body yeah we see him so overcome when he sees the woman in the bathtub it's one of those classic jack nicholson faces right and he's just kind of looking up out of a as tilted as a, head as, clearly as a sexual opportunity totally he's got this look it's gonna of devour like, yeah it's first like looking like the wolf from the cartoons mm. movie, uh, that, mm. that also pervade the film right cartoons, well and what's interesting is so okay so I, I i'm glad you brought up that jack was sleeping when it happens to danny because what i mentioned when we were watching it this time we know Danny goes in, but we don't see what happens to Danny when exactly. he goes in. What we do see is Jack has fallen asleep next to his typewriter with his head on the desk, and he is shouting, and he's shouting things that either are terror or sexual sounds. Mm-hmm. At first, he sounds like maybe he's calling out, is what I'd say, and then it becomes something that's more guttural and yeah. un- unidentifiable, other than... It doesn't really sound like terror. That's the thing I'll say is that right. despite his claim that he was terrified by what he was experiencing in his dream, they either sound like he's becoming uh, a caveman mm-hmm. or that he's experiencing extreme sexual pleasure. And yes, and then when he wakes up, he denies whatever that was. And, and says, he's says scared. I had the most terrifying dream. I cut up. You and Dan. I killed and cut up you and Dan. Right. And he's disoriented. He's horrified by it. He can't fathom that this just happened. Meanwhile, while that's happening. The implication is that that is when Danny's being violated. Because then he comes into that room. and He's all shoveled. The end of that scene is that he enters in sucking his thumb. Right. That's something I noticed uh, this time about uh, about uh, another way that Danny experiences the Shining. I was thinking about it's when adults lie. Also, the first time we see him experience The Shining is when he's in the bathroom brushing his teeth. Mm. This is another oral moment. Right. So his trauma is probably oriented around that somehow. Yeah, and that really then speaks to maybe what Wendy sees at the end of the movie. Yes. When she sees that man presumably getting oral sex by something dressed Someone in a costume. Someone dressed like a dog or a teddy bear. Bear or something. And right. it's got a like a bear butt-like kids pajamas fascinating too just that it takes him it takes jack we can come back i want to come back to what's going on in that room but while we're here it's it is interesting that it takes jack 
actually now finally killing somebody. He kills Halloran when he comes in for Wendy to now start to see and hear what's really yeah, going on. Clearly Danny and Jack have both seen things. They've been, they've been point. seeing things from the beginning. Really what mm. the movie is, is the descent after each of them crossed the threshold into uh, that hero journey that mm. what are we going to become conscious to? Yeah. Wendy's not there. She's, she's seeing, she's always sort of alluding to, I, I know it's bad, but it's okay. It's okay yes. enough. She's in denial about so much. She doesn't want to know more. She says that with the doctor in the beginning of the movie, when the doctor says, oh, we can run some tests. And she's like, no, I don't want to do that. She doesn't want more information. Yeah. And so when she finally gets it, it's not of her own choosing. It's because now the threshold has been blown wide open. Jack has now actually killed somebody. Right. Yeah. It's no longer just fantasy. And her fantasies are always oriented around how can we bring Jack back? Always. Yeah, up to that point, she's had, I mean, stubbornly maintained the fantasy that somehow we can repair this and bring Jack or Danny or both back into the fold. Danny has had a psychic break, so he needs to see a doctor. And, or Jack needs to see a doctor. And that will bring us back to where we were. Another place where, uh, where authority is externalized, and sometimes for good reason, but sometimes not. The, the scene with the doctor at the beginning, we always kind of comment on how uncomfortable that really is, how dominating that is. You know, Danny's laying in bed without any pants on. She's sort of hovering over him, intruding it, by it insisting on looking with, in his eyes. Yes, something that is potentially just a banal statement, but it's played over black. That scene mm -hmm. begins with just a just black and there's we, we see nothing but we hear this dialogue that the doctor says about seeing and she's in the line is hold your eyes still so i can see mm. and so if you that is i'd say that if that's isolated and it is isolated by the editing of the film it sounds the best the explanation without that context of it being a doctor looking in the eyes with a with a device yes is that it's like it sounds like someone entering into another person and being able to see what they can see. So and and what is more violating than that, or right. what is more uh, occult than that? Right. It's 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 um, it is one of the first moments. I mean, the movie is full of moments where banal things are being said that have other meanings, but this one is, I think, the first moment where. They're so far apart. They're not just, you know, what men do behind closed doors and the way that they sort of are, are always speaking another language in a way, like in this, the interview scene between Jack and the men. The doctor saying that that is a voice. It's almost a disembodied voice of authority. And it's and it is it's genuine. I think it's genuinely eerie and banal at the same time and mm. in ways that completely contradict each other it's not just ironic it's just yeah well and the 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 banal aspect of it is what can make it even more dangerous because it's sort of hiding in plain sight because it's it is it is almost implying that there are these secret words that allow people to have power over you that come in through you accepting them as every day and having right. no power the and way the, that the doctor speaks to Wendy in particular and, and the way she tries to speak to Danny is a little like that. And I'd say that there is an implied critique of uh, how 
doctors are one of the line of defenses against mis uh, misbehavior among people who need to be controlled. Right. Even if we like, we just, we, we never really know about these things. We can never really figure out really what's going on. Yeah. We can run some tests, but really it's about ceasing the behavior. Yes. And returning it to a state that we understand. Right. And I was loving that scene, the the repression that is represented with Wendy's cigarette and mm -hmm. the amount of ashes that she has yeah, accumulated. While she's <laughs> describing and defending yeah. Jack's violence against yeah. Danny that might have triggered all of this Tony yep. and his ability to shine yep. consciously and all that. That, yeah, that moment when Jack supposedly just upset from a day at work grabbed Danny too hard and dislocated his shoulder. No big deal. Yeah. It's fine. It's something you do every day with yeah, a child. Yeah, totally. It's how you keep them in line, right? <laughs> you teach uh, them. And, and also supposedly gave up drinking at that point. Right. But then the, uh, later on, we do learn about that, that the timeline skewed, that that actually occurred over two years ago mm -hmm. or something like that. It's years ago anyway. He says, yeah. God damn years ago, Jack, and that he's only been sober for five months. Mm -hmm. So are they actually connected... Anyway, so she's did she's, he actually feel he she's telling a story that makes it sound like he feels remorse over that and that's what stopped him from drinking, but that's ambiguated. <laughs> yeah. Later on in the movie, you, you're not yeah you know, you're not sure what his intentions or motives, right, and he certainly doesn't have the same idea about his sobriety as Wendy does. No, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. No, so the pent up anxiety in those ashes as that cigarette just burns away and she's no longer smoking it. She's just sort the of story externalizing. Is she's not looking at the right things. Right. She's not aware. Yeah, there's all these things that are being said with that cigarette. While we're still in that scene with the doctor, do you what what do you think? Because there certainly is meaning behind the doctor being a woman. Here we're externalizing authority again. Yeah. But in this situation it's a woman. That's the first time or the only time we see that. It is interesting. I mean, we don't, it's not the only time because Wendy, in some sense, has authority over Danny and that the, there are moments where she offers up that version of authority, which mm. usually is explaining away things or speaking implicitly from authority by in ways that the child can understand. So if you connect those two, it might be that the doctor is treating Wendy like a child. Ooh, right. Okay. That that's the presence of mo actual mother authority. Mm -hmm. That's Wendy's mother in some sense. Fascinating. Yeah. Even the way that she tries to maintain a lack of affect on her face, the doctor. Yeah. Even though she's and clearly she's holding Wendy. something back, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's she's expressing even behind the I'm trying not to have a reaction. Not that well, Wendy would see it anyway. That there's a lot of judgment happening. Completely. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, so, I mean, we're talking about the feminine, we're talking about the women in the movie. And so going back to. And the woman in the, yeah, in the, what we were, I think you're going to say in room two, three, yeah. seven. Yeah. Certainly has a, an authority of some sort. Mm -hmm. She just has to stand it's up. It's not explicit at all, but well, she has authority. If no, I mean, it's, it's not the type that's uh, like the masculine guaranteed by a contract. Backed up by violence. Yeah. It's, something else is it sexual yeah i think it is and about activating desire the way that mm. has power it is violent too though to danny i was trying to interpret that the best i can come up with not that i have any real authority on offering explanations but the one that occurred to me was that 
if Danny's trauma, it's built on a lot of ifs, but mm-hmm. if Danny's trauma does involve him being sexually molested somehow or being forced to do things with his mouth, there is this threat that he's going to be overtaken by the feminine. And so that's why mm. it's a, a like a life and death threat to him. It, it would take over his agency and identity in that way. Rather than through your own his desire, it's not really about his desire. It's about Jack's Jack for Jack. It's about his desire. Say more about what you mean by him being overtaken by the feminine. Well, that he's that he's made to assume that role. Got it. And in some sense, the part that he more identifies with is Danny. Right. Would die. Would have to die in that instance. Ooh. Traumatizing. She tried to strangle. She tried to take away his breath right at least that explains why it's not overtly sexual for danny even though it is for jack <sighs> some sort of transfer of power or, or possession and that both of them involve against... possession and yeah. there's different means right both things that right. are taboo the violence and the, the sexuality even that danny experiences as well and he is privy to, in some sense, how there's certain forms of it that aren't any different. They they both have that transgressive quality, and that's what unites them. And there's also this, you caught this, which was that when Jack is in 237, presumably Danny's asleep. Because he's yeah. not around, it's a little bit darker in the apartment. We just assume he, now he's asleep, which or, Well, what it, he's explicitly doing is experiencing a vision. Wendy later says that he was asleep. Okay. Um, Halloran's also experiencing it. Uh, vision at that point that Danny presumably is projecting to him. Mm. Uh, I think that is when he's called. But um, yeah, that would make sense. Uh, but yeah, the, there is that parallel there. Then that Jack was sleeping when Danny was in the room, and Danny was dreaming or sleeping, dreaming of some sort while Jack was in the room. And there was this element that it—it's especially apparent in the cutting of the jack jack's experience that danny is experiencing it too and it's almost like jack is experiencing danny's dream and so presumably something similar might have been happening when jack was dreaming Mm -hmm. it's almost like from jack's point of view because he's got this narcissistic megalomania going on he might even feel responsible for what happened to danny because it parallels his dream Wow, so there's so much then playing between the unconscious states that where we can access or they can access those sorts of things. And the way that there's so much more than just what's happening, obviously, literally between them and their waking selves. Mm. There's a lot more that's being exchanged, maybe even caused, that is that is both them coming together where their paths cross in waking reality also how they are both diverging on two very different versions of this journey. Yes. That they're, that they're both that They on. are sort of like a coin. Two yeah. sides of yeah. it. Yeah. Rolling along. <laughs> Only one side's going to come up. In the- oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I'm also now <laughs> imagining uh, Jack's, you know, frozen face on one side of the coin, which is just yeah. sort of amusing with his eyes rolled up. Um, <laughs> So, so there's the so the way that the feminine shows up is 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 interesting. I do it's think in these that rooms. there's an interesting thing to note there. It's not necessarily a coin, but the other place that famous faces show up is like statues, and that is a parody of a statue's grotesque version. Oh, yeah, of that he ends up. In. Yeah, and it is almost in that position, like the Lincoln Monument or something. Yeah, 
And in the garden yeah. where you would put the statue yeah. in front yeah. of the hedge. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So even that actually just came to mind for me that I don't remember seeing much gardening around. I don't think there is any. So the one place where there is life outside of the hotel on their property, it is so structured. It is so... But structured to be disoriented. Chaotic, right. Which is really what Stanley Kubrick's movies are. Yeah, fascinating. They're, they have a lot of the Apollinian elements. Yeah. It's ultimately to produce a Dionysian result. Right. It's ultimately to to confuse you about things that you thought you were certain. Which is even when Jack is leaning over the model of the hedge and then it becomes us actually looking at Wendy and Danny inside of the hedge. It isn't one or the other. You you called this out. Um, it's neither the model now nor the real Yeah, that's the, I, I'd of the, say that other than the explicitly the shining moments that are occurring to Danny, mm. that's the one of the first moments where it's it's not Danny's fantasy. It is Jack's fantasy more than anyone else, but it's also this thing that it seems like we as the audience are only privy to, which is that this is neither the table nor the actual maze or somewhere in between. And yeah, I mean, if you're not paying very close attention, it, it can pass by because it, it passes as one or the other to depending on what you're paying attention to. But as I pointed out, yeah, the, the floor that they're walking on when it is the table maze slash real maze mm -hmm. is white. But the actual floor that they're walking on when we return, it's obvious when, they, when we return to the real maze, it's all these gray stones. Which then jumps toward the snow that we're later going to yeah. find them in, but also creates this strange liminal space that doesn't really exist. But we still have... Jack leaning, sort of powering over them, and them being these two little tiny things, achieving, yeah. finally we got to the center, but it's all of that and none of that at the same time. Yes. And it's like, it becomes like, like a display in a museum or a zoo. Mm -hmm. It also is reminiscent of the, the later scenes in 2001, where the primary light source comes from the bottom, so you have this white floor. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Which is disorienting. It's right. not the way human beings usually set up their rooms. But here in this world where nothing is what it seems or things can reverse or get confused. Yeah. And again, the only nature that's on the property, the nature being the feminine, that is there. But it's so curated, but it's so curated for chaos. Yeah. And then it's surrounded by all of this untouched, massive nature that could also devour everything that's yeah happening there so if you were going to give like a reading that's based on um even something like gnosticism or something you could say that yeah when when danny uses that against jack it is that he can navigate both and they've kind of become one for him the masculinity right yeah. well okay so that, interesting. that's your salvation yeah so there's so there's these rooms where we're noticing that the ghosts, the the images suddenly have agency and they're able to cross the threshold to have an impact on the material. They're no longer just images in a book. They're no longer just projections of imagination that we're having conversations with at the bar, which we'll get to. But now they're actually able to touch and affect and, and create all of this. And the feminine presumably is where, where something about that consciousness is able to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And yet 
there's also so much about the feminine. We talked about some of the gender stereotypes that happened at the very beginning. And then the the villain that Jack makes Wendy out of throughout the movie. And then especially in that room with all of that Navajo art. And then especially when there's, he's sort of chasing her up the stairs and she's swinging the bat. That there's so much that's being intensified in that moment about how she's at fault for the victimhood that he finds himself yeah. in. And also, anything wrong with, with Danny is her fault. It's all her fault. She interferes. Yeah, even when she's trying to be, you brought this up before, empathic of him, caring of him, he he's, he rejects it violently. Mm-hmm. So now he's, you brought up something so fascinating earlier. We're taking us to that that part of the stairs, um, that scene in the stairs where he's she's slowly backing up, waving the bat at him, and he's kind of coming at her, being, mm-hmm. you know, he escalates into a level of goofy that is terrifying, which you brought up that right before that, Danny was watching a cartoon. Danny's immersed in the cartoons. Yeah. Potentially, I'd say, because it's giving him the message that you need to beware, like the Roadrunner, beware of the coyote, he's after you, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So he's immersed in that as Tony. Mm-hmm. And Wendy can't really get through to him. Right. So she has to deliberately take his attention away from that. That's the scene before. Right. And she says, I'm going to go see your father. Mm. Just for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that leads also to, that's the scene where she finds the uh, novel, which <laughs> consists entirely of, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy with with mistakes that, that can, um, variations because we see so few of them but yeah we were also pointing out that then when she sees that book a few of the variations are uh, all work and no play makes jack a dull bot yeah so it points to no agency yeah no agency he's servant of some sort mm-hmm. robot is mean it means slave and then all work and no play makes jack a dull bog is another one mm-hmm. uh, bog the, only, the thing I thought of immediately was that that's a place where we put dead bodies, and a lot of preserved dead bodies have been recovered. It's just maybe a connection wow. to death. And the other one I saw this time, which could have been there, <laughs> I, I thought I saw it for sure, was mm. All Work and No Play Makes Jack Adult Boy. And so it is like he's he's neither an adult nor a boy fully at this point. It's like he's in the the fantasy world of a boy, right? But with an adult body, where there could be real consequences to his you know, impulse to violence or something. Well, and there's so much maybe there that then alludes to his own trauma, because mm-hmm. what happens to boys when they're traumatized is you do you are anybody that's traumatized at a young age, you're forced to grow up. Mm-hmm. And so there's maybe something there about grow what up we don't without know. that part of you growing, right? Up. Yeah, and we missed the connection to the previous scene, which is that by the end of it, he's being so goofy and making oh, yeah. such a play out of bashing her brains in. Yeah. But yeah, I, I thought that is like, it would only make sense if he thought he was in a cartoon. That it was the Daffy Duck, yeah. the Bugs Bunny. Yeah, and he's just and he's just trying to get her relent, to relent by repeating, give me the bag. Yeah. And saying things that are egregious, like, I'm not going to hurt you. Yeah. I'm just going to bash your brains in. Yeah. And like, that that's a, a, like a in a cartoon kind of a funny thing to hear where there aren't actually real consequences yeah. to that. Yeah. And here he is telling that to his terrified wife who's swinging a bat at him as she's slowly backing up the stairs. Uh, yeah. When you said that, I thought, Oh, that puts it into such a different context. We're either watching a man 
kind of unravel by psychosis or unravel by this possession that's occurring, or we're watching something that actually has no meaning whatsoever to him because he is so unaware of really well, the I intensity of this. That the he understands the authority, but one, at one point in the that he just says, "I signed a contract." Do you know? <laughs> Do you have any idea what a moral and ethical principle is? White and I think Vernon. to yeah. him, those are truly just words that indicate authority. He has no, yes. he has no idea. He's asked, maybe even asking himself whether he has any idea what he signed away, what an ethical principle is. Right. Well, and I think, right, so he's he's not connected to the root of the meaning of any of that. And yet... He is acting out the violence, which is the only true thing that really backs up that kind of contract. Yeah. Yeah. So so that brings him even further away from his consciousness about what he's actually doing in that moment as he's really that's that's his first time he's really aggressing upon her. Or yeah, it's getting violent, actually threatening violence overtly and and making light of it at the same time. Right. It's almost like the unreality of those those empty abstractions for him gets transferred onto the reality of violence. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that, that's something, there's something there. Well, isn't that... There, because that, that is an element in the movie, is that the imaginary or the illusionary is becoming real. But I think that is what that masculine shadow dominance, like the power of that actually is. Except... It's just well, I the guess, violence. I guess the psychotic element. That, mm. which is that you're in an illusion but you don't really know it right that's what ba and makes the violence so easy yeah. well and i'll just say this i remember the first time or the first couple of times i watched the movie i remember thinking why are we watch why are we looking through every page of the book everything <laughs> says the same thing although the more i watched it the more i was like wow the formatting is fascinating he really thought he was writing a script or he was i was thinking actually <laughs> that this almost seems like a parody of a postmodern piece of art oh it almost like in in this mm. is a little either like i get what you're trying to do but it's not good art like comment from <laughs> right. stanley kubrick because it's not for everyone no it's only really for you and the people who get the inside joke there's something narcissistic about this type of art mm. but that it is it's both from from another point of view if he was an established artist this would be a legitimate piece of art that people would pour over and find meaning in those small differences just like we're doing well, with this movie. for different reasons but because it seems so well constructed and because it seems like it's actually trying yeah. to do multiple things at once whereas that it seems like a lazy way of indicating that mm. you are profound yeah right <laughs> think i mean think about just the difference of the creation process of that being conscious and intentional and a, a sort of critique of something rather than just this man who is becoming so empty that he's he's just an open vessel for whatever possession and some people in. say that's the only difference between being <laughs> schizophrenic and being an artist, an artist yeah. completely yeah. no those 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 typos are are huge yeah they make a lot of meaning okay so one thing that I want to, unless we want to go back to, maybe we can, we'll introduce Grady maybe into this because he comes back in the next place, the next room that is kind of obviously feminine, where that threshold again is able to cross, where one of these images or ghosts is able to actually have physical authority. So, but before that scene, we meet Grady in the bathroom of the bar in the 
in the the gold well, ballroom. The bathroom of the gold ballroom ballroom where the bar right is located. Yeah, so that's the second scene. Jack where Jack goes to the bar, but this time it's occupied by all the presumably spirits right. having a party. Right, the first time he goes in, it's completely, I mean, completely, completely empty. And we can even just briefly mention how the hallway, again, a hallway, kind of a liminal space. The first time he walks down the hallway, you'll mm -hmm. notice there are three mirrors to his right. And each time he passes one of those mirrors, he's coming like, a, like he's, yeah. he's rattling in his Making anger. Making sure that he can't see his own face, I'd say. Right. Every time he passes the mirror, he's, he's, he's just sort of flailing about in his anger or frustration. And then when the mirror is not there anymore, and it's just the wall. He walks calmly. Mm -hmm. uh, the second time he walks down that hallway, he's calmer. But every time he passes the mirror, he turns to the left. He's like intentionally Making, not yeah, looking yeah, in the mirror. Distracted by the party and the party noise. Right. And, and he's looking. Right. He's not intentionally, actually consciously not looking in the mirror. No, he's just distracted by the party. I'd but say. that's his aversion to actually seeing any yeah. truth in yes. those liminal spaces. Okay. So now the first time he walks into the, that gold ballroom, it's, com it's completely empty. He sits down at the bar closes his eyes and then he kind of looks at us yes because all we've seen is the mirrors behind the bar right and so the camera cuts to a just a full-on not necessarily a subjective camera angle but you are having something that jonathan demi likes to do a lot which is the actor looking directly into the camera mm -hmm. and actually jonathan demi for instance says that's the whole point of filmmaking mm. is to get the audience to accept those moments Ooh. Weird, because the rule is generally you don't ever have actors looking into the yeah. camera because it breaks the fourth wall. So but not, of course, yeah. Kubrick so, kind of pull it off of in a course. way that's brilliant. well, and it's 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 deepened in the movie. The if they've happened before in the movie, it's been subliminal. But here he's clearly just addressing the camera or us, and we are standing in for a mirror, as far as we know. The camera is right, and we are. Yeah, so that. That should be unsettling, but you wouldn't necessarily know why <laughs> mm -hmm. if you're just more passively watching the movie. And so now the bartender appears. I forget the bartender's name. Lloyd. Lloyd, right. Which is, you know, they're wearing the same color yeah. jacket. So reinforcing the mirroring. This is a projection yeah. that he is now speaking just to himself, basically. Yeah. And since he's a bartender, I think a good interpretation is that in some sense, Lloyd is his addiction to alcohol. Mm -hmm. The part well, of him that is an alcoholic. Yep. Lloyd appears yeah. and the full bar appears behind yes. him. All of the bottles are full. They're glowing. And he's also standing pretty tall over uh, Jack at that point. Yeah. And even the shots that occur where you see them both in profile... It's like Lloyd is much bigger than mm -hmm. Jack. It doesn't strike you at first, I think, because they're supposed to be both in profile, but Lloyd must be a little closer to the camera because Jack Nicholson isn't incredibly small. He just right. he's made to look small. Which is so interesting then maybe about sort of power dynamics and how this is a part of him that is much bigger than him and is contained mm -hmm. inside of his body, which can't be contained for long. Yes. And it's interesting that it's his alcoholism acting without the aid of actual alcohol, presumably, because there, we've there established <laughs> already that there's no actual alcohol in the hotel. Right. It's established earlier in the movie. And suddenly it's able to activate that alcoholic side of him without the presence of alcohol. He just has the 
visceral experience of it. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's real enough for Jack that it has mm -hmm. the same effect. Which is, I wonder what that is. There's something intoxicating about meeting yourself that way, yeah. getting to have that externalized conversation oh, with a part of you. That, that, and that ties into the first time we see Grady. Right. So, okay. So that's the second time that he's in the grand, the gold mm -hmm. ballroom. Yeah. Which, where Grady, yeah, accidentally spills something on him. And I, and I just want to point out yeah. really briefly too, that that ballroom, we were talking about this, is representative of that kind of the conquering in a different way. It's not appropriating the Navajo art. It's now the wealth and the luxury that comes from having dominated and, and, yes. and, and stolen. Yeah. And a protected place for transgressing boundaries that, you know, are usually present for normal people. Which is why that's when Jack's actually able to look into the mirror. He can't do it out in the hallway. But yeah. once he's in that room, he's protected by All that, wealth. that wealth, that conquering, that this is now, we're or claiming this to be ours. up by the promise, the potential promise of wealth. Right. That is one of the things that motivates him. So all bets are off then in that room. And so the second time he goes in, yeah, there, there is an actual ball happening. There's all it of these It is interesting spirits. if that is what's motivating him in the first place to allow that in, in a sense, with Lloyd. That that's why he would be disturbed when, in the second instance, it, it turns out it's not about money. Mm. When he tries to offer money for his drink, and Lloyd says, your money's no good here. And right. that actually disturbs Jack for a moment. Right. right, because the first time he looks in his wallet and there's nothing there. Yeah. And he says, how's my credit? And he says, your credit's good. So he had to kind of put himself so it, down one to it, say, I owe you. It also reinforces that what he's about there is that, oh, these people are going to give me money in some sense. They're going to give me wealth. Which he's That's suspicious of. But he's suspicious of. That second time he's in there and Lloyd says, we've got it he says i want to know who's paying for my drinks yeah but i think the implication more is that it's not actually about money mm. and that's what's disturbing potentially and that's mm. what's disturbing got it because the first time he just thinks oh they're promising wealth and the second time he thinks it may not even be about money right which means what is it about what are you expecting <laughs> what, like, where is the power what realm are we even operating in because of course, the, the currency is tied to the nation. I'd say it is this indication that you're, this isn't just about even national boundaries, whatever. You're crossing into a realm that, that he doesn't understand. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. If we don't know who has the power, that's frightening. Yeah. White man's burden. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes sense to him. The money right. and the way that we, in, in the American tradition, have turned conquest into money. <laughs> greater european tradition too but white man's burden is is that you have a burden to civilize nature mm -hmm. and that if you are willing to do that and risk losing yourself in nature that way you can enjoy the spoils mm -hmm. of that, that civilizing and so he's stuck his whole where where wendy becomes a lot of the villain to him is she doesn't understand it she's not empathizing with the plight that he has to go through as a white man held to these contracts to be in transition to that luxury but not to have it yet i'm doing the work but i'm not yet yeah, seeing and don't the you know spoils. i'm gonna bring you along with me right so why aren't you happy stop getting in the way yeah yeah Stop distracting me with these other things. But really, all of that's his own internal conflict. Yes. 
So he eventually accepts that after that, in that second time in the ballroom, when Lloyd says, you know, Lloyd, he's like, your money's not your here. concern, right. is what Lloyd says. And Jack just accepts it. It's more like he's he, it, it activates the dutiful soldier. Part of right. It's another white man yeah. that just says the right thing. And he's like, whatever you say. Mm-hmm. And so then he stumbles around with his drink. And then that's when Grady bumps into him and spills. Makes you wonder whether part of his... Anyway. Yeah. Either way, part of his... That respect of authority either has to do with him being in Vietnam or not in Vietnam. Mm. The guilt about that, I would say. I mean, because the way this movie, in, in terms of when it came out, is situated, Jack would have been either a veteran of Vietnam right. or a, a dodger, draft dodger. Oh. Of some sort. Potentially. Anyway, what do you think he would be more likely to be? Hmm. I, I can't say. Hard to say. Uh, since he's kind of an academic before, but a fallen one, he's probably mm-hmm. a dodger. But he, but since that's one of the things he missed out on in terms of masculine power, maybe to yeah, him because yeah, yeah. he was afraid of it and feels some guilt about being afraid of her shame, then he would be conditioned at this point in his life to respond that way to the suggestion that it's a military type authority or a government type authority. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think if he actually did serve... Especially if he's actually fallen out of the academic circles. Right. He doesn't have that power anymore. But but being in war would also explain how violent he is. So... Yeah, but I think there's something that it wouldn't be as dormant or it wouldn't be as, I don't know if he could access the cartoonish nature of it if he really had actually been in war. I agree. Especially that war. Yeah, I agree. And he wouldn't, he might even mistrust uh, that sort of authority more having been. In I it. think so. Absolutely. Yeah. That war, is, again, especially any yeah. type of which military is, experience, which, but uh, Vietnam. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a tangent, but it is something that I keep, being disturbed by which is how someone who is ostensibly a hippie could become a trump supporter mm. which that that it might even be a, a bridge to understanding that oh that's interesting because of course yeah the hippies the hippies who became mediocre men probably carry a lot of that you know and so there's something about the authority that trump which is this chance to hook onto that authority that they missed out on by right. not becoming uh, a soldier. Interesting. Yeah. That would also, I mean, hippies and just veterans, the, mm-hmm. the minority of veterans that support him are, are of the older generation. Yeah. They're still caught up in that fantasy that's yeah. the authority on yeah. Oh, I get it. There's, there's, a, there's a specific kind of trauma. I mean, there's a trauma with all sort of military service it's interesting trump's also very anti-military he's like manages to appeal to whatever and that's that's his essence as a comment it's the he can appeal to whatever you want him to be well yeah he'll be whoever you need in the moment but i think that also then would speak to the conflict of the the veteran that is you did say sorry for interrupting no go ahead in the moment i think and i think it was i don't know where it was in the movie but you said something about oh like Trump. <laughs> yeah, all the best people. Oh, right, right, right. At the beginning, when the hotel manager is saying... That you sounds know, a lot like something he would say, yeah. I think he did. Yeah. I think he said it. I don't remember what context, because it's so hard <laughs> to keep track of all the things that fly out of yeah. the man's mouth, but yeah. it was like just that narcissistic, I need to be atop of the hierarchy, 
is that if I'm not the best, I'm working with all the best people. Right. Yeah. And if anybody knows that, it's me. Right. So sort of keeping authority. Yeah. Well, and again, it goes back to the sort of like, who are all the best people? I bet you there's not like women of color in that group. Right. It's about a sort of white supremacist conquering of things, which is what that man was showing. You know, you have the, the Navajo art in the one room and then it transitions into all of these fancy, wonderful, royal, presidential white people that have been here who are all the best people. A lot of pictures of them literally glad and yeah. like shaking hands yeah. or just smirking or, and... or looking knowingly at the camera while they're drinking together. Right. Yeah. Look at all of the power and the yeah. luxury and how untouchable we are. Yes. Yeah. So that's have there's so much of that that's represented. I mean, that's the archetype of that gold ballroom. And then there's this bathroom that's so not like the ballroom. Right. They, it's so Kubrickian. They go but... out of this gold ballroom that was presumably there in 1921 and all the people there seem like they're from that era yep. into a bathroom that it is impossible for 1920. <laughs> it has a ceiling that's obviously from the 70s yeah. it has those vents and that that cheap tile you sometimes see in like classrooms uh-huh. that haven't been renovated yeah yeah um, and the, le- the lights are kind of yeah inlay yes yeah and, and very modern sleek in its own way but sort of disorienting. And the, the, the urinals orange. are way too tall. The reds are way too red. Clockwork it's, orangey. It's, yeah, it is. Um, it's red approaching orange. Yeah, it's like yeah. where blood red yes. becomes orange. And yeah, it it does look like a bathroom that would be more of the, the clockwork orange aesthetic than mm-hmm. what we've seen so far anywhere in, in that even especially in the gold ballroom, but anywhere, anywhere. Yeah. Um. So in some sense, maybe, yeah, it represents a future or an imagined future Mm. or where that sort of converges with the past informing the future. Mm. That's what I thought of Mm. when I was making the connection to Clockwork Orange. I feel like it was a portal, so that makes a lot of sense, that there's something converging or transitioning there. Yeah. And it's also another bathroom. Well, yeah, we didn't actually mention that before when we were talking about room 237, but the idea of bedroom and bathroom and kitchen, which we'll get to... But those are the feminine places. Bedroom, a place for sleeping, for but, sort of safety and yeah, when it's letting a public go. restroom, it's it is a more feminine place where men feel uncomfortable, but it would be specifically for men. Yeah. Right. So there's a little bit of yeah. I don't know if we'd say conflict or uh, overlapping. Yes. Where it's, it's kind of where men go when they need to be more than just men. Wow. And so that's the first time he's meeting Grady in this, yeah. in this context. Yeah. And that's where Grady really is telling him about what it is to be a man and how women need to be corrected. And suddenly this guy who's been this completely subservient butler is right. telling Jack what to do. But it's interesting also that the parallel with the other bathroom scene with the woman is that he's attending to Jack's body. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, I got chills at that. Yeah. And, and over and I over because he can't get the stain out, yeah. so it's repetitive yeah, and incessant. Right. It's almost his sexual chest. in that way. Yes. It, like the way the woman sizes him up and mirrors him too. They both are mirroring each other at first when they stand side by side, Jack and the woman who comes out of the bathroom the in room 237, the tub. Yeah. But she looks down, presumably like at his penis, it looks like. Right. And starts to then 
extend her hands like she's going to unzip his pants, but then it becomes like it's around his waist and going up his, like, this chest and then delineating his shoulders, like how strong he is, and his neck. And just, so it's like, it's almost, I, the sense I got while I was watching it was that it's like, I'm letting you know how much power you have as a physical being, mm, as, mm. as someone who has a body Whoa. that's strong. That's yeah. where Grady spills all of that on him. Yes. So we're focusing again on that, but now it's a dynamic between but two men in a completely that, different bathroom. Even that's about a different sort of sexual film. It's a parody of sexual mm. fulfillment because it is this clumsy butler like spilling stuff on you and then maybe there's Oops. a promise of sex i'll just be rubbing the wrong right. place too long <laughs> right. and maybe you'll get excited right yeah like oh, oh if that if the woman didn't completely work for you we also have men there are options in here <laughs> jack it's okay yeah it still is sexual but like a parody of the sexual right the, the, the heteronormative sexual well and then it's it's taken to that other level because that's where grady is talking to him about those gender dynamics and what role he has to play as a man. Mm-hmm. That's where he's sort of introducing him to that idea. He's kind of normalizing what Jack's been going through, that transformation, how he's seeing things differently. He's like, oh yeah, all of that's real. I've been there. I've done that. I had to do it. You have to do it too. And that's when Jack's, I mean, it's it's sort of the, the order of it. I'm not sure how much it matters, but he's like, wait a minute, I recognize you. Where do I recognize you from? Oh, you were the caretaker here previously you were the one that yes. murdered your family it's also where um what's interesting is that danny always experiences the same a parallel thing usually before jack where it actually becomes physical for danny is before it becomes physical for jack right um this is the first moment in the movie where jack is being given some version of the ability to see into the future or prognosticate because he's mm. told about Halloran planning to come. It's something he couldn't know right. in normal circumstances. Danny's been revealed to have that ability already. Is that when he finds out about that in the bathroom or is that when he's in the pantry? No, in the bathroom. In the bathroom. That's where he lets him know that an N-word cook right. is looking to interfere right. with our plan. And he, it's almost like part of Jack is also activated by the N-word and then Jack repeating the N-word. Right. There, there's an implied... Um, Another threshold is crossed. Yeah, white brotherhood yes. there. But also that he's... Yeah, you're acknowledging what that is by repeating it to each other and, and, and just be like, yeah, we're in a place where we can we say We can say N-word. that. We're safe here. We don't yeah. have to look over our shoulder or <laughs> yeah. worry about that or yeah, exactly. hurt anybody with that. Well. Not hurt it. Yeah, whatever. Well, we're, we're not letting people know that our intention is to hurt somebody. Right. So, so yeah. So another threshold is crossed there, and he is. That's why I say it's sort of something's being normalized for him. All of these internal twists are like you know he's seeing them them in somebody else, and that's the dark. Yeah, by seeing path. an external authority figure, even if it's clearly it's just him to anyone who's <laughs> observing from the outside, re- repeat these things that are like whispers to him before. Right. It uh, suddenly it is an it is what he has to do. It's not even just a normal authority figure because it is him repeating what he's already knows in some sense. Well, and it's the way that the shining manifests for Jack too, mm. which is you know I was saying when we were watching it that it's interesting that Danny has Halloran as an external guide to be transparent and be truthful and be vulnerable with him in a sense. And then Jack just has these, these random white guys. If that they're he's not finding. ghosts. They're just 
right. schizophrenia. So the call's coming from inside the house the whole time yeah. with this guy. Yeah. And it's always taking him down the dark path where all of the thresholds that he crosses are not to awakening to more information and how to stay safe and how to it's how do I how do I get away with more? How is my victimization validated so that I'm entitled to do these other things and have to do these other things mm -hmm. because of it? So when we see Grady again, unless there's more in the bathroom that you want to touch on. Um, the sentence I never really thought I'd ask you, but. More in the bathroom. <laughs> that you want to touch on. There's always more in the bath <laughs> that I could touch on. <laughs> yeah. But, but, then, but then we see, the next time we see Grady, it's again in a feminine space, which is the kitchen, when Jack's now locked in the pantry because Wendy was able to knock him out with a bat. She drags him in. And locks him in there. And I say, I, you know, I'm not necessarily reinforcing that, you know, the kitchen is feminine, but that is what we are kind of given. I think in a lot of ways it is, right? There's nurturing that happens through food, providing, you know, a sense of sort of community and just, yeah, being fed um, is inherently mm -hmm. feminine, but that's also Wendy's place. That's the place that she's taken on it for to be like, this is I where you do your service. It's not necessarily the kitchen. It's where the commodities that part of the kitchen but not really mm. exactly uh like where the work occurs uh -huh. it's where all the commodities are uh-huh there's abundance mm -hmm. in there yeah an abundance of stuff food. yeah there yeah. there there is um when grady makes the deal with jack mm -hmm. it seems to allow him as a ghost to physically remove the lock from the door the there, threshold's crossed again right it's simultaneously a lot of things are happening jack is like i'm pointing out being surrounded by commodities mm -hmm. which i do think have something to do with the power that's being transferred there um well we can also look at capitalism and that's, that's right, what okay. I mean. right, right okay that it from a filmmaking point of view or a moral point of view it's giving you a warning about commodities aren't as banal and empty as we think they are they're not just ways of nourishing ourselves or items that we exchange right. whatever they also have this power over us and all, they also come to represent certain forms of power like the commodity over jack's shoulder just like when he's in the native american room writing supposedly writing his novel you have another appropriation of of native american imagery with the chief on the calumet baking soda that's just that's literally over his shoulder in the moment where he's agreeing to kill his wife and child. Right. Yeah. So a new contract is emerging now in mm -hmm. that moment between them. Grady's saying, this is what you have to do. I'm going to let you out so that you can do that. Yes. And then now Jack still no authority of his own. He's in a new contract now that he's obligated to and wants to execute. Yes. And so, you know, we're curious about what allows these thresholds to be crossed, where the physical is able to be affected by mm. the ghost or the image. It's almost like the contract takes on the sort of power that it had when it's represented as a covenant between God and, and men in the Old Testament. Mm. Because it, it is this, this way of bringing something that's on that side, the sacred side. Oh, that usually isn't present in our everyday life over. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think. No, say more. Yeah. Um, say more about well, it is interesting that it's taking these contracts that have been 
scrubbed clean in some sense of that notion and that historical baggage, mm-hmm. but bringing that back mm-hmm. uh, to the fore mm-hmm. as always an element of that. If the authority isn't violence, God will stand in for that violence. You know, something like that. And it, it, it the, in some sense, the reason that we're so, any of us who are aware, so aware that they're actually backed up by, backed up by violence is that it's, that we have eliminated the religious element that you'll be punished somehow. But again, right. And again, it's us losing connection yeah. with where all of that meaning stems from in the yes. first place, which makes it so dangerous because it's dangerous stuff already, but now it's acting, it's being enacted unconsciously yeah. or at least without connection to its actual meaning. Which is maybe why it has, it can have what is seemingly supernatural power because it's the most unseen. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most, it's horrifying to us or abject to us somehow these elements that are most abject to us don't even occur to us and therefore have their most the most power over us in moments where normal rules don't apply. And so now Jack is freed and he does kill Halloran. Yeah. And now all the thresholds are broken at this yes. point. Now it's he's now fully not a person anymore. Yeah, in terms of the film that you hear on the soundtrack, like spirits being awakened, these this chorus of ghostly voices is suddenly dominating the soundtrack and he has a look on his face like he's gotten a taste of something that yeah uh, that he's been hankering for yeah and he's down to keep going for it yeah Mm -hmm. and and he's he's fully on the other side at that point he's not self-possessed at all he is in some very real sense possessed by the spirits of the hotel or the spirit of the contract that he made, all these things. His agency isn't his. Well, it's it's also where you said he's now sort of guaranteed to be... I mean, he's close. First of all, of course, he's closer to death than he is to life at that oh, point. Oh, well, yeah, the contract that he makes with Grady, mm. I'd say, is where he, as a living being, commits to being the servant of death rather than life fully commits to it we're no not playing around anymore with it as a fantasy Mm -hmm. we need explicit confirmation that even though you're alive you're willing to commit yourself to death at this Mm -hmm. point you're a soldier yeah of that yes and you will execute and again like i said before that's when wendy starts to come into awareness of these things and is now no longer trying to bring jack along she now gets that she needs to get danny and herself out of yes. there and so that frees her in a sense i mean again it's not of her own she's not on her i mean of course she's on her own journey but it's not really a journey of consciousness until she no longer has a choice about it and so that's where her freedom actually comes from and she makes really good choices you know she figures it out she does get them out of there and yes. she manages to save them at first, thinking that she's going to martyr herself for danny letting him out the window right and jack is right there before Jack is distracted by Halloran coming. Right. Which reminds me of one of the problems I have with the movie before. And mm-hmm. so I think a problem some people have versus the book, which is that Halloran doesn't seem like he does anything. Except he, he does that. Oh, he's, yeah, he's That's what he does. Yeah. yeah. But he is almost there just to be a, a sacrifice, which is disturbing. Which I think is the why that choice was made, to well, have Halloran just come in there to, to die. 
Well, and as a black man, I think there's obviously yes. a lot of symbolism behind yes. him being the sacrifice. But yeah, he had he had things to do in in other adaptations and, and mm, the book I see that yeah that anyway that might have been more satisfying on a narrative level, but not truthful or disturbing right. in the same way. Yeah. You know, I took some notes, actually, the last time. Here's some themes that I think are really interesting. The last time we watched those together, which was months ago at this point. But what I wrote down was the marriage of, uh, the marriage of heaven and hell, the king and the monster being the same person. Do well, yeah. That? Well, yeah. You, all that, that goes back to these contracts being some parody of the covenant with God, I think, mm -hmm. on some level, which is that mm -hmm. usually these things are about bringing the kingdom of heaven whatever that's the new covenant in the, in the new testament certainly but here it's about yeah that there's no difference mm -hmm. jack's being sold on the idea i think that no it was always that heaven and hell are coincident and really to bring about which may be true the mm -hmm. kingdom of heaven you also need to risk plunging it into hell mm. or or literally do that whatever that means we i don't mean to be advocating for that or anything i just think no. it's it's part of the whatever the symbolism is in this movie and in the religious text that kind of influenced it and my interpretation so yeah i don't want to sound like a zealot or something i just mean <laughs> that that's part of it and the other part was that he he does as the axe wielding insane <laughs> uh version of himself become like the minotaur and i mean literally eventually is in a maze chasing someone who does the same thing that was done to the minotaur in order to defeat him he, he, he traces his steps where the minotaur doesn't have that ability it was ariadne with the string and the minotaur but danny's both the ariadne and which goes back to cool. maybe that it is like some converging of masculine and feminine that danny like realize this could be a tool the feminine frame right. isn't just something yes. that's a threat to him right it's not gonna actually yes. possess him yes. it's something that he has choice over yes. which does make him more whole yes that's why his journey is one of light yes versus shadow but yeah and then there's a story by uh borges that makes explicit the idea that the minotaur is also the king of crete and so from and it's almost like the story is told such that from the Minotaur's point of view, he is the king of Crete. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's all he is. Mm -hmm. From And it becomes clear as the story goes on that from the other people's point of view, he is the Minotaur. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. And that is Jack's state. It's even more of a delusion than the if he was the king, actual king of Crete. <laughs> um, or even the actual Minotaur. But, but yeah, that's what's occurring and that that split is pretty clean the subjective and objective mm, subjectively right he's at the top he's actually finally has he, he finally has ultimate authority it brings me back to just that thought that in a sense as he as he holds the energy of that white man's burden that victim he's ignoring all of the privileges that he does actually have including where he gets to stay but then also he doesn't really get to enjoy any of the, the perks of that like no. the whole setup leading into it is here are all these places where luxury happens but you're staying here at a time where you don't get to use any of that you don't even get to stay in one of the cool suites you have to stay in this apartment it's usually for servants that's for servants right 
so yeah, his, his, his finally being able to obtain all of that is really powerful. There's also something you had looked up the Colorado state seal. It was always using God. Well, this is what we were talking about. sort of using God to justify the violence for order and authority, even though we usually get it wrong. That's what the the symbols were in the Colorado state. Well, there's the state um, motto that's part of the steel. Mm, Or seal. seal. (laughs) Well, that's a fun slip. Uh Yeah. Well, and it is an ax, by the way. Right. The seal it consists of an Which axe. Which was the weapon that was used. Uh, yeah. and, and some other symbols. Yeah. Um, but I'm forgetting what Latin phrase it actually is, but it does mean that like, under God's authority we act or something, mm. something like that. Powerful, because you yeah. can really project anything onto God's authority. Yeah. Ooh, dangerous. Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you about this. The typewriter. Mm. It has connections to... It's a German typewriter. Yeah. And it has Nazi connections. Yeah, well, the, the the eagle on it is remarkably like the eagle that the Nazis used as part of their symbols. And also, the the uh, it is interesting, then, that that's one of the things we share with the Nazis in America. The eagle. Ooh. Yeah, which also occurs in the film, an American eagle. Right, of course. Yeah. <sighs> Fascinating. So Yeah, and, and I would say that there's something about the banality of evil and how that is, you know, something that intellectually was processed out of, you know, uh, World War II that mm. I think Stanley Kubrick's tapping into mm. and and just instinctually uh, using as part of his, his toolkit of concepts there's just there are moments like that in the film where you it's like how much evil can be traced back to a bureaucrat writing your name on the document mm-hmm. or um some yeah and it's some like faceless figure mm-hmm. doing this where you know smoke it's got that element of like the smoke's coming up you, you can almost see it yeah. Like this person who's got a cigarette and it's just like maybe the smudge of a cigarette decides whether you're, you, you know, matter one or one, not. Yeah, well, one of the ones that ends up in the camp. Right. And yeah, that's, that's whether your life matters. Yes. Whether you whether your time matters. That was something you had brought up that time when we last talked about it, too, which it is. And it's about, you know, the way that paper, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the movie that he was going to make about World War II was called the Aryan Papers. And it was about these documents that if they falsely or not could establish that you're Aryan, you were exempt. Yeah. And so there is this terror, there's underlying terror in The Shining with the contracts and all that stuff. Yes. About how when power becomes operable through something as seemingly benign as a piece of paper. How much horror are we actually capable of? Wow. How much violence is unleashed through that, through covering it up with, oh, it's just, it's just paper. It's just paper. And how paperwork in that, when it's like that, when it's backed by a contract that's backed by violence, it is a way of creating this imaginary shorthand that's on the paper in more, like, 
it it facilitates its its actual Exec- yeah execution, its execution right it's, it becoming actual right becoming real which including is including the ability to kill people I keep which thinking. is almost circular it's like it shouldn't have the ability to kill people because it's backed by the violence and the ability the the like sovereignty over death so it shouldn't be that paperwork can have this circular power where it's like will kill you because the paperwork says so and that's backed by our authority to kill you <laughs> right right like that's a, a loop yes. we're caught in the thing that's coming up for me is i've been re-watching game of thrones recently and the first season where there's a lot of betrayal and who's the rightful king is it comes down to a piece of paper that gets torn up right and the tearing up of the paper is as backed by violence as the piece of paper yeah, of itself course. was backed up by violence that's actually the purpose of these intricate bureaucratic structures mm-hmm. or things that are essentially imaginary well it all depends on where we all collectively decide to put our faith i mean money is also yeah. paper but because we all believe that it's something more than that it is yes and i think that is a lot of what um Stanley Kubrick's movies are, are about and why it's a, a gives it's a bum rap. It's giving him a bum rap if you say it's just too rational, too cold. Mm. Because really, what he's about, from my point of view, more generally in his films, is about revealing those gaps between what a, a seemingly purely rational, you know, act mm. claims it is and what it really is, mm. and how and yeah, and how artificial those things are that are supposed to be that are backed up by oh this is only natural this is the way things have always been mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's so much well there can be so much power and this is the way things have always been yeah. because it it's that you know the thing you fear versus the thing you're comfortable with even if the thing that you fear is growth in a good direction or right it's it's collective growth or whatever we we inherently go toward what is already familiar yes so this is the way things have always been there are legitimately things that are larger than you mm. but they're not they don't consist of what you think they consist of. Mm. i think that's part of it and that that really their power over you does in some sense consist of your inability to think what they are and i, I do think that's one of the messages also of stanley kubrick's films which is that i'm going to open up your ability to see that everything that you think is so important is a lot of paper. You know, what then is there's two things that are coming up for me. One maybe seems a little more tangential, but when Jack is running through the maze at the end of the movie, I, the, the last time we watched it, I thought he was grunting something that sounded sort of like the national anthem. Yeah. That's uh, a good guess. Which, well, I, I think the, the fact that it sort of sounds like that is meaningful. Yeah. But then we watched it this time with the captions on, and he's singing, San Francisco, here I come, right back where I started started from. from. Although, he doesn't quite, he's so slurry. It is almost like he's singing that song to the rhythm of the National Anthem, which is, I guess, why you could, because that song usually goes like that. Right. But he's elongating everything to the point where it does. It's sort of in the rockets, right? It seems like it's going at that pace. Yes. Uh, And that's, there's something too about right back where I started from, about kind of the roots of gold, the conquering, the way things have always been, at least when we say, like, make America great again. Like when we're going back to the time when things have always been. And how really what that is is a cycle of violence. Right, right, (laughs) right. Right. And that it actually hasn't always been that way. We kicked the door down and created a path 
where then it could be always that way from that point on. But it it forgets everything as that long came as before. You, forget you have to forget everything. If you retrace your steps, like Danny does that and does the whole thing. Right. Well, and it's you get to truth that way, but it yeah. undoes the illusion of all of that. Yes, that, where the, that authority comes from, which so, is really forgetting. So then the other piece, okay, so wait, okay, so we watch Danny as we go through the movie. He's wearing a shirt with Mickey Mouse on it. He's wearing a shirt when he goes into 237 and presumably gets confronted with uh, this a similar sexual experience that Jack has or something mm -hmm. that's intrusive of that. He's wearing an Apollo... Just Apollo USA. Apollo USA sweater, which is a very phallic mm -hmm. look of the spaceship. I think that's the right interpretation of it. There's all the sorts of conspiracy theories about how that's connected to Stanley Kubrick's secret admission in this movie that he faked the moon landing, where I really think, yeah, <laughs> it's more about... yeah. Maybe it's both. <laughs> no, but that's people defended against it. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Against what really how happened it's clearly there. a phallic symbol. Yeah. And <laughs> even the way you said, even the way he stood up yeah. slowly from the floor yeah. is like like the rocket. A slow lift. Which which would mean that it's some, it's something that he that is sexual that he doesn't know is sexual because it is hidden behind another thing. Right. Yeah. Which for a child who knows what his his experience, his exposure to that has been, his trauma to that has been. There's also then a, a veil where that could also be as, as confusing or as foggy for him. Certainly, I think that's why he's attracted to that room. Sure. Yeah. Right. And then so at the end, you know, I, I'm just sort of amused tracking all of the colors because he's also wearing a lot of red, white, and blue, Danny. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, these signs of capitalism and, and American triumph and all of yeah. these things and then at the end he's actually wearing something that's a little bit more neutral but it is a little bit of like christmas colors it's a little bit of red and green mm. and I, I actually said oh maybe there is that capitalism in there that america in there because christmas does take on that that realm but you're well, like well now we're back has something to do with certain well, certain people's conception of america as a christian uh -huh. nation right. or rooted in christianity somehow but it also means that Christianity is obviously larger than America. So, right. yeah, he's in some sense, he's been wearing, he's graduated. Mm -hmm. He first was wearing Mickey Mouse, which is <laughs> like about corporate America specifically. Yeah. Then more about like the greatest achievements that our government has has managed to uh, reach recently with the, with the moon landing and stuff. Right. And yeah, now he's... Yeah, now he's wearing Christmas colors, and also it kind of blends in. It's not, it's not it's overtly not a symbol, right? But I do think that there that it could be something legitimate there. Like I was saying, that there, there's like a Gnostic Christian interpretation mm. of what he's doing in the maze mm -hmm. and and throughout the movie. So, yeah, I, I I do think that in some sense he's achieved some sort of salvation that's mm. quasi Christian. Interesting. Yeah. I, and Wendy throughout it, she's she's not like consistently moving maybe in one integrating path. integrating the pagan aspect of Christianity. Because oh. those colors, of course, aren't inherently Christian or pagan. They're kind of what the pagan oh. elements of Christianity and Christianity that's supposedly pure have in common. Now. Share, anyway, right. Uh, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, when we see Wendy, too, I mean, she's she at one point she's wearing this jacket that has a lot of like tribal like indigenous patterns on it and she mm -hmm. she's sort of flowy yes and, and she looks very comfortable in those very and, comfortable and it's like where did that even come from right 
Right. Yeah. Where did I actually? My first sense when I saw that was, did she get that from mm. here? Like, is that in a closet with some of the art? Half of his sister. Yeah, I, I, mean, I know. Yeah. It just it just didn't seem like something she would own and she then would bring together. with her. Yeah. Which is interesting to see what they're wearing. I haven't actually tracked what Jack's been wearing the entire time, but um, you well, know, it's a little more like a frontiersman or something. Mm. Especially his outfit by the end. That sort of suede jacket. Oh, yeah. And, and just a plaid shirt or something. Interesting. Yeah. He's like one of, he is like one of the people making the West, going out to find gold. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Coming back to sexuality in this movie, and, and maybe the, I don't know if intersection is the right word, but where sex and death dance with each other. Yeah. Where is that theme coming through? I mean, there's obvious there's obvious moments. That, that 237 room is really the hub it's of clear. it. It's clearly there. Yeah. She's a sexual object who then becomes a rotting corpse. Right. So, and there's violence that occurs. In there? Well, yeah. For in Danny. There, previously. But we aren't really privy to even what that consists of. We have right. to imagine. Um, but, um, yeah, I would say that where the threat of death and sexuality occur for Danny. You know, I, I'd say that that's a very consistent interpretation of right. what's occurred there and for Danny. And then it's explicit for Jack that it is about this, and usually very masculine fear that somehow death, or no, not even just masculine, but it's experienced as masculine in this film mm. through that lens. But, that somehow death is going to sap you of life. Mm, or no, somehow sex is sex Somehow sex is going to sap you of life. Mm. And somehow you, which which has other parallels in other uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick films, like the the General Ripper in uh, Doctor Strangelove. That's what he's obsessed with. Mm. That these women are going to come along and steal <laughs> his essence. Uh huh. Yeah. Purity of essence, life, blah blah blah. Then yeah. those are all connected. <laughs> well, there's also that you know when when Wendy and Danny are watching TV together, and there's this clip from a movie that they're watching that we see, which you know the context of. What we're seeing is what I'm I'm viewing as this is really boring. Of course, a kid does not want to sit here and watch it. There's this woman; she's asking this guy at the table if he wants coffee. There's not a lot of dialogue happening. Why would a child want to sit there and just watch this? Your context for that movie is that there's there's something sexual there. Well, yeah. In the movie, if you, I forget the name of it, but you can look it up if you know what the plot is. It makes some sense because it's about an older woman seducing a much younger boy or man. So um, now we have a sexual dynamic again, something predatory. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it makes sense then, I think, that it's a, a scene where both a son and a mother are oblivious to whatever the encoded messages are in this media that they're consuming. Right. Um, so it, it just relates to their ability to overlook certain things. Maybe Danny's ability to be transfixed by things that he doesn't even understand, mm -hmm. but understands that they're important for him at some level because he is transfixed by that, which, yeah, no normal boy really would, I'd say. Well, for there's... a boy that doesn't have his lived experience. There's also the element of in the movie, the older woman as asking the younger boy, he's not, he's maybe a young teenager or something, yeah. if he wants coffee. So and, there's also this yeah, denial. And she stops herself of saying, oh, you're old enough to have coffee. Right. right. You're coffee. Right. Yeah. So she's sort of feeding her own illusion of this is okay because he's old enough for this. Yeah. 
So there's denial mirroring denial there mm-hmm. in a sense. And so then, of course, Danny is like, I don't want to be here for this. Can I go get my fire <laughs> truck or whatever he said? Yeah. And, and Wendy's like, well, you can't because your father's up in their room sleeping. So she's she's understanding. Well, one, she's just trying to protect the solitude for him, I'm sure. But she also knows that he could be violent. She There's all mm-hmm. of these moments where she's she's confronting like she i knows, maintain know. she know right she knows but sort of won't admit something deeper than that mm-hmm. i maintain that when danny comes back all disheveled from room 237 she blamed jack not because of the logical reason that jack's the only other human of that she knows of in that hotel but because she knows how capable he is she's seen of that violence before right so she's sending him up into the room or trying not to because at sleeping, we don't want to wake him up. He's like, please, I'll tippy toe, whatever. And I'm thinking I wouldn't send him up there at all if I knew how violent this man was. Yeah. Because to wake him from a sleep, he'd be really agitated. But she's like, OK, as long as you tiptoe, really be careful. But she trusts him to do that. And then, of course, when he gets up there, Jack is not sleeping. And they and have a really have strange conversation. Tense, another really weird, strange, tense scene. Yeah, where Danny is, he's sort of, he's giving his dad whatever he needs. Yeah. Uh, so that Danny can feel safe in that situation. Yeah. Because he knows that if he doesn't fulfill his role perfectly, something bad can happen. But he's also trying to gather information. He's right. asking him questions that are seem innocent they seem like those questions that you're like why do kids even ask questions they seem to come out of nowhere right silly little buggers you can tell that that's the spirit that jack's taking them in but they're very pointed they are about do you feel bad and there's there's different ways of determining that like obviously his dad is having a hard time but also it is like this test of do you ever feel bad do you have guilt? Yeah. Do you have empathy that sort of yes. makes you reflect on what you're doing? And of course, Jack says no. Right. <laughs> I'm just not sleeping at all and don't know why. Right. And he says, well, go to sleep. No, I can't. Yeah. I've got too much yeah. to do. Yeah. Well, what, Jack? We're not really seeing you do much of anything around yeah. the hotel. Wendy seems to be carrying yeah. this whole thing. And then that becomes his, his question and the, that his sixth sense tells him to ask at that point is you and do anything to hurt us no i'm just gonna bash your brains <laughs> in. but he that's also where you get the first overt clue that jack is shining too mm. his answer to danny at that point is a, an echo of what the twins said to danny in the hallway he says forever Ever. i wish we could stay here forever right and so that's the a clue that in some way it's not the same way Jack is receiving the, the message, messages that Danny has received, right. too. He's shadow shining. Mm-hmm. He's in some other world. Yeah. So, not just a horror movie. I don't think so. <laughs> no, I, well, the way in which it's a horror movie, I think, is something you could touch on. The horror movie is a means. It's not really the end mm-hmm. of this movie. Mm-hmm. It's about the way in which through a genre like the horror film we do become opened up to things that in other situations we'd never be open to we allow ourselves to do that because the the horror response is so involuntary Um, it's visceral yeah our own defenses come up like laughing comedy is different it opens us up to I think logical possibilities that we're not usually open to. Mm. That would be my interpretation in general mm-hmm. of comedy by illustrating the opposite. But 
it activates that part of the mind. And horror is about the things that are abject and that we yeah. can't look at. Yeah. That aren't explicit. So it's a really important yeah. vehicle that yeah. this movie can't bring everything that it brings without, right. without that. But it is a horror that it's not about, you know, scaring you through by surprising you or right. anything. It, it deepens. As you watch the movie once, twice, or as many times as I've watched it, it becomes more horrifying with each viewing rather than less horrifying because you know what's around the corner. There's this inverse property in hmm. The Shining where things are more terrifying because you already know other things mm -hmm. about the movie. Yeah, there's hardly any blood in it. I mean, most of the blood comes from either Danny's images of the twins or the, the elevator. Yeah, and elevator then the moment. only real ostensibly real blood is Halloran's. So it is. And a you, little bit on Jared. But. Would you say psychological thriller? I don't know how what that genre sort of entails, but there is obviously a lot of psychological components. Well, there's to this. all these these subgenres of the horror film I mm. think, that Stanley Kubrick is playing with. So it's where one of those. for certain people, the majority of the film is allowed to be a psychological thriller. For certain That's people, it's allowed to be a people. ghost story. For certain people, it's allowed to be the subgenre of a ghost story, which is the haunted house movie. The psycho killer movie, the slasher film. I'm intrigued by your use of the word allowed to be these things. Because it's not any one of them, and it, or it is multiple, multiple at one time. But there are certain things that would, like my first response to that was somebody, certainly a white American who doesn't understand the actual root, the violent root, the appropriating root, the thieving root of our independence might just see it as a psychological thriller. Yeah, and I think you should be very afraid of people who tell you that The Shining is not frightening. Mm. There's, it's become a meme or a trope that people say The Exorcist isn't frightening to them, which I think has its root in like be quoting Beetlejuice. It becomes funnier to me every time <laughs> I see it. <laughs> but there are people who just unironically, I think, say that well, The Exorcist, that's not scary to me. It's funny. And that's its own category of person. But I think, yeah, someone who can't find the empathy to be frightened by the shining is potentially dangerous it was that was when it became the scariest to me was once i started well i watched it as an adult and i started to see all of those layers of it which deepened when you and i watched it and together I think people defend themselves against it and that's that's the reaction it's not as scary oh god like, it's horrifying this isn't even a good horror movie because it's not scary of all the great <laughs> horror films i've heard that more about the shining than any other Maybe because I talk about The Shining so much, but I, I also think it has something to do with how much there is to be potentially defended against yeah. in The Shining. Because it's yeah. activating, potentially, so many buttons. Well, and I'll say this, too, is at the beginning of the movie, when, he's, when Jack's in there for the interview, on the hotel manager's desk, there is a big book that is read, and it actually says the red book on yeah. it. Which I don't know if this was on purpose. Although Kubrick does have a history of being influenced by Carl Jung, the the book itself is actually related to hotels. There's some sort of yearly book that comes out about hotel management, but the mirror of that also being like Carl Jung's Red Book, I think, really sets us off on the path of the path when we start watching it. If you see it and you get that, it, is yeah. that you're in for defense mechanisms, you're in for complexes, you're in for projections. This is a a a psychological moment of yeah, the conscious versus any, unconscious. 
like just, Collective just and individual. psychological interpretation of it, it would be through that. And that is what Danny's experiencing. And even what Jack's experiencing that he doesn't find his way out of. It's like if, yeah, I mean, Young talks about it. I mean, I'm not as much of an expert as you, but about like the legitimate fear of not coming out of what he was experiencing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. recording. Mm-hmm. But that it kept going deeper because it's so rich right. material. And that there is something about like there there does have to either be maybe not a suspension of fear, but an acceptance of the shadow in order to be curious about those things because you're gonna find things which is, that are frightening. Yeah, which is like what that's what it, part of what I mean about horror films opening us up to certain right, things. Right. That we aren't open or to. reflecting how closed we are to those things. Yeah. I, I think that it, if you are frightened, you're opened up to it mm. because you're experiencing it on a level that isn't conscious mm. and then eventually it can work its way. Oh, yeah. It you can know? work on you yeah. one, even beyond watching them. Yeah. And then I think I think in at least with Stanley Kubrick, especially, I think there's like a, and among people like me, a need to make those things conscious. Mm-hmm. That's where the obsession with this film yeah. comes from, Yeah, which is that the way it works on you unconsciously encourages making those things conscious. Yes. Because otherwise you're just, you are, tra- you're trapped in the maze of that Ooh. film. Ooh, yeah. Which might be good if someone has violent impulses or For inclinations them to, be to just be like taking all that energy and putting it into some conspiracy theory about the shining. Rather than doing what a maze could do i think of like a labyrinth well, right not seeing it literally right a lot of the 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 i keep referring to it, but it's like that documentary room 237 mm-hmm. i i'm I, i'm also afraid of sounding like one of those people because there is this danger of taking that the movie way too literally right i mean i'm saying all these things in the spirit of this is my reaction to it based on what i know about the film and about you know just his whatever cultural things i'm bringing in but there are people who take that very literally and become married to these labyrinthine and bizarre theories about the film but i I do think that that's that's part of the that indicates the power of 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 this work of art well and it also indicates the the dominance of the masculine the masculine shadow it, it is like for those people um my interpretation would be that um they need to remain in the mask. Yes. So they keep bumping up against the limits of the masculine that are present in the film. Yes. But then like turning it, the masculine version of events becomes more and more ridiculous. The more you yes. keep trying to return to that for all the elements of your interpretation. Right. And they become conspiracy theories. Yes. Yeah. We, to concretize those things gives us a sense of control over them. Yeah. That's one of the things. Which gives us safety. I, it's one of the things I spontaneously said that I was surprised myself when I had a, a a man who kept coming into the place where I worked, mm. who kept wanting to tell me about the latest conspiracy theory that he was buying <laughs> into. And I said, aren't you able to doubt those just based on they give you something, like some comfort that you figured this out, and that the deeper conspiracy is that that's rarely true. <laughs> you don't know hardly anything right things are very complex and the really scary thing is that and that in some sense is the conspiracy the conspiracy theories 
allow us to forget. I mean, it there is a simplicity. It's not literally, and also it makes us think that human beings have this capacity to plan. But they actually don't, <laughs> even at the highest levels. The highest authorities, for the most part, know as little as you about how to actually manage things and other people and the weather and all that stuff. So no, there aren't Jewish space lasers that control <laughs> the weather. Right. But isn't it a cool story? Can't we look at it as a story, <laughs> as a metaphor? Yeah, if you look at it like that, it. then it's then it's material. Yeah, to be worked on. You can have you can you can learn a lot about yourself and about how you view the world if you allowed that to just be a story. Yeah, we literalize fairy tale. It's a problem. Before we get out of here, I, I almost forgot about this. 1921. So at the end of the movie, we see that picture where lo and behold, Jack has been there the whole time. There. And it's dated July 4th. There's the, the ball on the Independence Day ball. Uh, 1921, you looked up the significance of that. Yeah, I it is something that's eluded me for a while. And I, ha I thought for a long time that it had something to do with the transition from the silver standard to the gold standard. Mm. And it, it might mm -hmm. have something to do with that. And actually, I arrived at this almost coincidentally. It almost seemed like some something that shouldn't have occurred it. I was looking at that. Of course, it came to like coins that were minted in 1921, mm. specifically a silver coin mm. that was that went over from one design to another in 1921 to signal the end of World War One. That mm. went from one style that had a woman's head on it to another style that was all about peace mm. and celebrating the peace as a result. Interesting. Oh, the end of World War One. What that is, how that's significant, and why the U.S. would only acknowledge that in 1921 <laughs> is a little weird because the war, supposedly as a conflict, ended in 1918. Mm -hmm. But the treaties that were signed mm -hmm. by Europe, and even more complicated by the other ones that were signed by the U.S. with individual, uh, uh, individually with Germany, Hungary, and Austria, who are the other side of the war against mm -hmm. the Allies in World War One. Those contracts went into effect in Europe in 1921, and the additional contracts were signed in June June 4th, 1921, oddly enough. So one exactly one month before July 4th. And then the ones that America entered into with the uh, the, the opposing nations were, were signed in August of 1921 mm. and didn't go into effect until later, but but that was a confluence of the contractual and the contractual end of the of World War One. But the beginning of this period, paper. where yeah. these pieces of paper and the authority behind them was going to starve resources from these countries, mm -hmm. and inadvertently lead to the rise of fascist powers, mm -hmm. because when Germany defaults on the uh on its uh the reparations that it owes france france occupies germany mm -hmm. and that that leads to the rearmament of germany and the and the popularity of far right and far left but far right uh political parties right like the nazis so this bridge between the two world wars mm -hmm. and then you know what it means is it's like they don't they're not necessarily conscious of it, but these papers represent, what would you call it? Um, 
the decision that we're going to repeat this. This right. is Something all going conscious. to happen again. Yeah. Intentional. Yes. It is scary. Yeah, it is like a like like that. It's uh, the, at the least, for, at least it seems like for Kubrick yeah. that it represents that. The, yeah. the, ability, the secret power of the contract. Also, it's that right. none of these individual people are thinking that's what the contract is going to be. It is almost like this over overlooking but this the, <laughs> what they're overlooking and this power that overlooks human action at this point because the the grander it becomes the more these unforeseen consequences become dire you right. have all the power to inflict horror on people and through a piece of paper of course it's going to get more and more horrific the uh the consequences of these these unforeseen there's a reason that there's World War II imagery mm -hmm. of some sort mm -hmm. in it. There's a, there's, there is Stanley Kubrick's fascination with the Holocaust and Aryan papers and all that. Right. So you, I think you do see a through line of how he traces the ability for the Holocaust to happen. I think that is a concern of his at the time that he's making The Shining right. that colors The Shining. But it's never explicitly right. stated. Right. Even the dates that he gave, he could have said like 1938 or something when the Nazis actually came to power. Or whatever. But this is also about America and it realizing its world superpower status. I mean, the fact that America had the gall to say, we're not going to be part of the League of Nations. We're going <laughs> to sign separate treaties <laughs> with all these na uh, you know, nations because we want to make sure... That we're special. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're that, uh, the, the sort of origin story still, of that danger. We're becoming very powerful. And we are, in some sense, allied with all these European powers, but also exceptional and isolationist. Right. And want our own deal. And where does that go? What does yeah. that lead to? Well, actually, yeah, it, it, it led to what I would say is that there's simultaneously European nations being more strict about the reparations and the, at, in the aftermath of the U.S. treaties is that U.S. is being less strict. Mm. It has the authority to be less strict. So it does also lead in in a counter to counter to what Europe, Europe is doing to their, their other European nations, but the, the allies of Europe, it leads in the other direction to the rearmament of Germany. It's, it, it allows them the, the economic freedom right. to rearm themselves. Well, and it, Where if there had been a united front, front against it, it would have been much more difficult because everyone would have been depriving them of the economic ability to do that. Well, and there's something hypocritical, too, about order and authority being so important in America and the way that it runs its people, but not the way it runs itself. It had more it gave itself more freedom or flexibility. That's a, that's related to. That gets into a whole other thing. Yeah, that's like a the whole... difference between natural and positive law, and the way that, is from some point of view, it's better for nations to be operating according to natural law, which is a little more based on who has the most force, the most, yeah, and then internally run by positive law, or whether there should be contracts that guarantee that there's something a little more than natural right. law treaties that are between all nations. Of course, the, the dark side of that is that it's not really all nations. It's That establishes all recognized nations. Mm -hmm. And then there's other nations you can exploit. Right. Not even recognized as nations. 
Yeah, those themes uh, really feel connected to this movie. Yeah, exploitation. So much, yeah. People who, I mean, it is related to the the uh, genocide of mm. the of the American Indian. Oh, yeah, of and the way that we yeah we didn't recognize even our treaties that we signed. Yeah, again, we gave ourselves the flexibility to not follow through on yeah. contracts. And yeah, maybe Jack Nicholson's a little bit like Andrew Jackson. Mm. Yeah, Andrew Jackson, you know, did things like they'd have treaties with certain tribes and the tribal leaders would, would bring a court case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court would say, yeah, there's a treaty. We shouldn't be doing this to you. I, I'm sorry. I, we're going to get right on that. And then they'd say, that's the law, Andrew Jackson. Uh, just just execute the law. That's your job oh. as the executive, you know, the head of the executive branch. Oh. And he would just say, no, you enforce it. Wow, so that's a parallel. I don't know if anyone's making so that parallel. So what saying is that, but... you know what? You know, I won't, I won't uh, do an official military campaign against these people, but I'm not going to start up individual citizens from doing what they feel is right. Ooh, I don't Which know. It's like dog whistle, you know, like mm -hmm. modern, in modern politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know that, that, that there are any think pieces about Andrew Jackson and, and Jack being... Yeah, Jackson. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> who knows the depths to which Stanley Kubrick is laying Easter eggs or, you know, leaving symbol well, in there. That might be a stretch, but this is tied to American history. Yeah. For uh, sure. I, and and ja Andrew Jackson did. It was pivotal to the genocide yeah. that was occur already occurring when he came, became president, but that he was a part of as a military person. I'm not an, an expert in that history, but it is true that he it's just an undeniable fact that he had a hand yeah a big had a big role to play in that well a movie <laughs> that really depicts the depths and the nuances of american history that needed a a, a horror genre in order yeah. to carry it that's pretty powerful yeah and it, and portraying it as synchronous in some sense this it doesn't it isn't always linear like this it returns like the repressed it, <laughs> it returns in our time yeah we're not just because it's history it doesn't stay in yeah the past. we're not free of those things we have yeah. to see where it connects to the present yes we, both are important knowing where it comes from and how it's still here or came back yeah if there's any more yeah capsule message mm -hmm. that, that the shining has it's that well there's definitely more that we can talk about. I feel like even about this movie, um, but maybe those will be future episodes. Yeah, we'll just do it next Halloween. <laughs> every season. year we'll make an every year tradition out of it. Well, it'd be perpetual yeah. shining. <laughs> yeah. More and more layers of it, I'm sure, will be uncovered. Or a reaction. Ten seasons of analyzing the shining. <laughs> I'm here for it. Right. Well, thank you for for doing this with me, Bobby. Thank this was you. fun. Thank you again, Vanessa. <laughs> very kind of you to have me yeah you know i had my misgivings about this but I, do. I think it turned out i mean i'm not gonna say it turned out well <laughs> but you feel good about it you feel no something no i just i feel <laughs> almost as disturbed about putting this in public <laughs> as i do about the shining i think that's appropriate well that's yeah i don't think there's a better way to feel about it or a more appropriate way to feel about it thank you well, there it is. I want to thank Bobby again for digging into all of the nooks and crannies of this compelling 
and haunting and frightening film. It was a really fun conversation. And if you're interested in more Imago in Motion episodes, follow along. You can find me on Instagram at The Hungry Feminine or visit thehungryfeminine.com for future and past episodes. And I also recommend that you check out Bobby's YouTube channel because that's where he shares the films that he makes, which are really thought-provoking and evocative and fun. And I think they really create an experience that allows you to go on your own internal journey and see what works on you, see what resonates or what resists. So visit him on YouTube. His handle is Brute Bros, B-R-U-T-B-R-O-S. I'll link that down in the description of this episode. And also let us know what you think. Did we miss anything? Did we change your perception of The Shining? We'd love to hear uh, what you thought and continue the conversation. So thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.